I haven't seen anybody so excited about balloons in quite a long time. It was like the whole country, the whole continent was like a kid at a birthday party, just looking up at the sky, talking about balloons, excited about balloons, wondering when or if it would pop. I'm talking, of course, about the Chinese spy balloon that floated across the continent a week or so ago. And I want to talk about the political consequences of it. Hi, I'm Brian Lilly, host of the Full Comment podcast here at Post Media. And before we get to our, our next guest who can explain much of not only the balloon, but China and COVID and the economics and the politics of what's going on, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast. Please do anywhere that you listen to podcasts, um, whether it's uh, Amazon, whether it's Spotify, Apple, hit the subscribe button, leave a comment, share it on social media. We'd appreciate it very much. But back to this balloon, which lazily floated across the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, down across British Columbia, and I think the bottom corner of Alberta. And then we heard about it once it was over Montana. And for days, the balloon was the biggest topic in the news. And was the government taking this seriously enough? Bill Bishop is someone who lived in China from 2005 to 2015. He writes the highly popular and very readable uh, Sinicism newsletter on Substack, and he joins me now from Washington. Uh, uh, Bill, thanks for the time, and, and what were your thoughts when you first heard about the big balloon in the sky that was the size of, what, three school buses? I think so. Hi, thanks for having me, and and yes, uh uh, you know, I have, I have kids, they're older now, but I remember balloons in happier times, um, and especially when they uh, have lots of clowns around. Um, I think that this, um, you know, the Chinese call it an unmanned civilian airship, mostly for meteorological research purposes, which um, it does not sound like the U.S. government or the Canadian government um, uh, buy. Uh, they, they both seem to be pretty clear that it was a surveillance, uh, some sort of a surveillance platform. Um, and... You know, big countries spy on each other. I, I don't think that that, that is, should be a surprise to anybody. The, the real issue here, I mean, there, there are several, but I think the biggest issue was that you had this large uh, surveillance, PRC surveillance platform that um, lazily floated and, and may or may not be steerable, depending on which side you listen to, um, over uh, you know, large swaths of... Um, you know, a, a swath of Canada and then, you know, large swaths of the, of the continental America. And it, um, I think what we've learned subsequently is that, uh, this is an ongoing, uh, surveillance program by the PRC, uh, appears to be going, run globally. Uh, this is not the first time that the U.S. government has, uh, detected, uh, one of these platforms in U.S. airspace. Uh, this, though, is the first time that it became public. And one of the controversies here in D.C. from a domestic political perspective is, was the Biden administration, you know, the, the Republicans, of course, say, well, the Biden administration appears to have been trying to basically not make this public and, and let it float across the country, keep it under sort of under wraps, go forward with the Secretary of State Blinken's planned visit last weekend to Beijing. Um, but what happened, of course, is once this 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 uh, balloon floated over into Montana, somebody saw it, took a picture or a video, and posted it to Twitter, and then it was picked up by local media, and then it became a national story. And once it became public, the U.S. government had to respond. And then, of course, we've had this this frenzy 
through last weekend, through the shoot down last Sunday, right off the coast of South Carolina over the Atlantic Ocean. And now this over the last five days, we've had regular uh, briefings from the U.S. government to uh, media, academics, think tanks, other governments, uh, making public sort of the findings they're getting so far about what this platform was. And really, I think, trying to um, make a, a very assertively declare that this is part of a, a, a large and ongoing PRC global surveillance program. And so that this is, you know, the idea is that this is a real problem and countries, lots of countries should be concerned about this. And so it has turned from, you know, a, a mockable thing, I think a week ago where people sort of said, what's the big deal? It's a balloon to now perhaps one of the biggest crisis in U.S.-China relations in uh, quite some time. And certainly has over the last five or six days, I think, left the the state of U.S.-China relations in, in perhaps the... Um, the most tense state that I've I remember it in in several decades, and frankly, even worse than it was I think during the the, the sort of the most difficult U.S. China bits of the uh, previous Trump administration. Let me ask you uh, who you believe, if you believe any of them. There's a lot of spin. There's a lot of propaganda, um, and and I, I mean that for both sides. It's what governments do. You don't blame the scorpion for staining you. But we'll start with the Chinese government. Do you put any stock in their claim that this is a um, a weather balloon, that it belongs to a private company, that they might, you know, uh, th- that the U.S. government owes this company for shooting down its balloon? Do you put any stock in the claims coming out of Beijing? So I do think it is unmanned, um, which is one of the key claims from Beijing. Um, I, I do think that um, it, it is quite possible that the the balloon itself, the actual sort of thing that keeps it afloat, uh, was was built by a um, private or you know in China maybe a, a state owned company that is not a military company. Um, but I I don't believe that uh, it's for civilian purposes, and I also do believe that regardless of who built the thing, um, this is. Part operated as part of a PLA global um, surveillance program. I think would be would be my um, best guess at this point. So even if it is a civilian owned or built, you think the People's Liberation Army was directing it or in some way benefiting from the balloon being there? Uh, I think this is part of an on. I mean, I think I think it is part of an ongoing program that the PRC has developed under the auspices of the PLA of the people's liberation army over the last several years to um, increase their uh, global surveillance capacity. Yes. The American government, and we haven't heard much from the Canadian government other than, Oh yeah, we knew it was there. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we weren't alerted until, as you say, somebody in Montana looked up at the sky and said, Oh, that's not normal. What's that? Um, until that, none of us had heard of this. So we, We've since heard several claims from the American government. One, that they knew about it all along and that they'd always planned to shoot it down. They just had to wait until it was in a safe space. And, and two, that this had happened multiple times under the Trump administration, as many as three times I've heard. What do you think is fact? What's fiction? What's the government trying to put itself in the best light? 
So I think there's a there's a, a fair amount of rear end covering. Um, I'm not sure what the Canadian phrase for that is, but um, it, it's uh, it, it's the same. It's yeah. the same. Okay, um, begins with an A, ends with an S. Um, but I think that um, it, it's quite possible that the U.S. You know, the, the story now is that it was picked up when it was crossing over the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Then it crossed into Canada. Then came down to the U.S. Um, the Subsequently, there were anonymous, you know, sourcing from a U.S. government official that, oh, well, actually, this has happened before and that happened in the Trump administration three different times. Then, of course, you know, had a whole bunch of Trump officials come out and say, we never heard about this. And then, of course, you had some backfilling by, uh, again, anonymous, I think, anonymous sources from the Biden administration that, well, actually, we only realized that it that it has happened three times in the Trump administration after um, after we took a look at this program once, you know, the Biden administration was in. So the Trump guys may not have actually known it had happened, which again, raises a whole separate set of questions about, I mean, I think the U.S. and Canada with NORAD have spent many, many billions of dollars for this um, system that's supposed to detect threats over the, you know, Canada and the U.S. Um, and somehow then it sounds like up until very recently, these balloons were able to slip through with nobody noticing, which is, again, I think, caused some real alarm bells to go off in parts of the U.S. and perhaps the Canadian governments as well. I, uh, I would have hoped all those generals and analysts in the mountain in Colorado would have picked up on this. Well, I, I mean, again, and this is it, it's it's so, so now I think you're seeing um, on the, to, to your to your question, right? You, so you're you know, the, the, the Biden administration then has to say, you know, well, we knew about it the whole time. And, you know, we, we wanted to surveil it and track it. And we were able to we were able to you know, I guess the re- public reporting says they put U2s over it so they get very good pictures and video and whatever else they collect on the actual um, balloon and its surveillance payload apparatus um, from all sorts of angles, including above. And they said, oh, we could block all the signals. So they were, you know, we were, they, they're saying, oh, that whatever they were collecting and trying to transmit back to the PRC, you know, we were able to block. Is that true? I have no idea. But but the story, of course, is we were tracking it the whole time. We we there was intelligence value in letting it drift over the U.S. and we couldn't actually shoot it down safely over the continental U.S. And so you know they waited until it just crossed over off the coast of South Carolina over the Atlantic Ocean, heading east, so heading out towards the ocean, and then it was much safer to shoot a missile at it. I mean, there was a chance. I don't think they were confident. Uh, at least in the beginning, that they could shoot the thing down. Um, and so you could have been firing off a missile over the continental U.S. that's just going to keep going and then land somewhere. And it's you know they go pretty far and fast. Um, and then if you shot the balloon down, uh, depending on, you know, it looks like when they shot it down, it's sort of the balloon itself exploded and then it just dropped straight down for the most part. Um, I don't think they were confident. And so you could have had a sort of a drifting out of control balloon with a much larger debris field, blah, blah, blah. So at least that's the story. And then, of course, it's also said, well, if it falls in the ocean, it'll be easier. It's more likely that the payload won't be completely destroyed on impact. And so there's more exploitable intelligence if we can, you know, salvage it. So that's the story. Um, I'm not in a position to say whether that that makes total sense. It, It certainly has gotten a lot of skepticism um, mostly from uh, the Republicans, right? Because it's very much a partisan issue here in the U.S. now that the you know the Biden administration was too slow and they should have shot it down right away. And you know why did they shoot it down over the Aleutian Islands? Blah blah blah. Or the right, Canadian- there's there's huge swaths of North America. I mean, flown over in the you fly over in the daytime and you can spend a lot of time yeah. as I do looking out the plane and window, see nothing. Is no sign yeah. of human life, not even a road. And like if, or probably in sort of British British Columbia, Western Canada, there's probably even more um, 
more unpopulated areas. And so again, it, it's just like it sounds like you know, I think given given that there was this planned trip for the US Secretary of State to go to Beijing last weekend and he was going to meet with the top diplomats and then I guess that that was never officially confirmed, but the belief for the leaks were that he would have a meeting with Xi Jinping. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons for the Biden administration to want to keep this from getting from turning into some sort of a crisis that it has become. Um, And so but of course, again, once it goes public, it shows up on Twitter, you know, everyone goes nuts. And uh, then it was politically impossible for them not to take action. And now, of course, shooting down a, you know, this, this, this PLA airship, of course, has you know created quite the reaction from the from the Chinese side, from the PRC side, and to your earlier question, you know, the Chinese now saying you know potentially saying they want compensation. I mean, good luck to the to the PRC side to do that because uh, <laughs> as soon as they name the companies and say these companies lost money, I mean, America is a very litigious place. There are a lot of lawyers. Um, there are lawyers who would love to start a class action suit representing all the people whose flights were delayed and the air- airlines who had to delay flights, which you know has an I- economic cost, to sue any Chinese company involved um, over this incident and then make it an even bigger incident that just keeps going and going and going. I mean, I wish at this point, you know, it, it would be behoove the PRC side at least to just stop talking about it and move on. You know, they got caught red-handed. Um, it... it the, pol- the politics in the U.S. are, are they're just going to get worse the more this issue keeps going. And so they really should just sort of move on. If, if, but I don't think they can, so I don't think this thing is going away anytime soon. Do you know if you have any readers in the Politburo in Beijing that would uh, would be reading Sinocism to know that this will happen? If uh, I don't know. I, I have some readers in Beijing. I, I, I don't think they're <laughs> at that level. But no, I mean, I think it's, you know, quite honestly – the um, there was a lot of surprise f- from on the Chinese side. I think, for example, like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing, I, I don't think a lot of people, if anyone, or other than maybe at the very top, actually knew the existence of this program. Um, I think a lot of you know you've seen just like you have commentators and academics and pundits on the U.S. side, you have the same on the Chinese side. I don't think many of those folks had any idea what this about this program. Um, you know, this, this sort of, and, and I think a lot of people's initial reaction, oh, what's the big deal? It's a weather balloon, but it's not a weather balloon. And so um, now, you know, every, each side has to sort of take its positions and the, in the U.S. government, you know, again, they're very um, robustly going out and pushing pushing briefings and the story about this balloon from the U.S. perspective. And, you know, the, the, they're not just doing it for the domestic audience in the U.S. They're trying, they're doing it with a lot of other countries. It's, it's really an interesting sort of, you know, you have the surveillance bit and now you really have this global information struggle where, you know, the U.S. is basically trying to tell a whole bunch of countries, look, China is, you know, they're violating international law by these, by these surveillance flights. And, you know, I mean, again, big countries spy, and the U.S. has certainly flown surveillance platforms over other countries without their permission. Um, and so it's it's just one of those things where it, the the best case is like, look, China's like us, versus where China keeps trying to say that they're the you know the U.S. is this destroyer of international law and does you know does what it wants, but we China you know we we respect international law when in fact if if this global surveillance 
sort of operation or program is as what it appears to be and what the U.S. government is describing it as, then, of course, when it comes to at least respecting other countries' sovereign airspace, the Chinese don't care and they're violating international law, too. Yeah, I was reading on your newsletter the other day that this is uh, very important to China, that they be seen as uh, following the rules, following the law, because that is one of their regular criticisms of the American and other Western governments. Yes. Let's talk about how this is impacting the relationship then. I, I am not hearing much from our government here in Canada. I think they're just letting Washington deal with this and you know, Prime Minister Trudeau, we'll talk about his blind spot when it comes to China in a little bit. But you've said it's worse than at any point. Um, what is it about this that is um, pushing it in such a, a negative direction, considering everything that's gone on over the last few years with um, the, the changes that we've most definitely seen in China? Well, I think, you know, sadly, I've been I've been fairly bearish on the trajectory of the U.S.-China relations for a while. And, and, and it just, you know, there's lots of, of structural reasons to be not particularly optimistic about any real improvement in the, in the near future, excuse me, or, or even medium-term future. I think, though, again, this, the hope was that, you know, China's, they've had a rough, rough year with covid They've come out of COVID. Xi Jinping was, um, you know, at the 20th Party Congress last October. He got his third term. He 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 really got from a from a sort of political power perspective, uh, looks much more, you know, to be the most powerful leader since since Mao. At least that's what he looks like. You know, he he had not yet met President Biden. Everything had been virtual. Lots of these meetings. You know, Xi Jinping starts coming out in uh, October. Went to Bali. Met Biden. Uh, went to I think it was APEC in Thailand. Um, and started meeting all sorts of international leaders or China was reopening and re-engaging and Secretary Blinken going to China was going to be, um, I think the first, his, the first visit to Beijing to meet Xi Jinping in person. And, and it was just sort of all, all like the, the hope was, okay, the relationship's not great. There are all these problems in the relationship. They're going to be continue to be these problems, but you know, the U S talks about wanting to set guardrails to, in the relationship to prevent the, 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 the tensions from turning into actual outright conflict. The Chinese don't use the same language, but generally I think they believe that, you know, they don't want conflict either. So the hope was with this Blinken visit, it would be the beginning of another beginning to another attempt at a process to um, quote unquote, put a floor into the relationship so that at least it wouldn't get worse. And maybe the two countries could start re-engaging in certain areas around dialogue and start trying to figure out a new um, sort of, a new way to coexist as sort of in this new era. And um, the, the balloon incident made Blinken's trip impossible, but it's not just, I think that it made it impossible for a couple of weeks. I think the sort of the fallout since the, the balloon and the shoot down and all the sort of competing statements over the last week. Um, and then other issues in us domestic politics, the Chinese political calendar it means it's very, very unlikely, I think, that there'll be a, a another a chance at a visit by Blinken until maybe the summer or even longer. So, And over the next few months, again, you're going to see more measures from the U.S. around technology export controls, potentially around investment controls. You're just going to see more, I think, pretty negative rhetoric, especially from the U.S. Congress. 
and so it just it just sort of and and then of course if like the the new speaker of the house McCarthy visits Taiwan like the former speaker Pelosi did last August that's going to cause a whole new downturn in relationship and so there just there's a lot of forces that were already lining up this year to push the relationship in a more in a in a more downward direction and one of the arresters was some people hoped and may not have been re- realistic, but at least it was a hope that a potential arrestor or governor would have been this Blinken visit um, that, of course, then was blown up by the balloon. And so so that's sort of where it's all kind of left, I think, worried that there really is a potential for a, a pretty significant free fall in the relationship over the next few months. There used to be a, a bipartisan openness towards China. And my read on American politics over the last several years is that there is now a bipartisan consensus against China. Am I reading that the wrong way? What's your take? No, no, you're reading it absolutely correctly. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons that has happened. Um, you know, it's it's a you could do a long podcast just on that topic. It it has to do, I think, with with domestic politics, economic issues. It certainly has a lot of a lot to do with uh, PRC behavior and specifically Xi Jinping. Um, and sort of, you know, I, I mean, there there were. And just also with the the shifting of the relative balance of power, I think that um, China is much bigger, more powerful, and and is is seen as really pushing an agenda and interests and values that are really quite inimical to Americans' interests, agendas, and values. And so, um, a lot of different things have sort of there's been a confluence of a whole bunch of domestic international factors to really coalesce into uh, a much uh, harder and tougher view towards China. And, you know, certainly I think uh, Trump, Trump was in many ways uh, the, the, you know, things were hardening under Obama, but Trump really accelerated it just like on the Chinese side, Xi Jinping accelerated a lot of things, both in the way the, the U S and some of the West views China, but also um, how, the, the PRC government views America in the West. And so, you know, one of the, one of the jokes over the last few years that started during the Trump era was that on both sides, you had this like accelerator in chief. Um, right. So, so Trump was accelerating a tougher, tougher relationship with China and she was doing the same thing. And so it was really sort of accelerating the two sides towards a collision course and the hope in some quarters, and it was misplaced, it turned out, but certainly there was hope on the Chinese side in some parts of the U S that, President Biden would have a sort of figure out a way to have a a, a sort of a, a more positive or a nicer relationship with China. When in fact, President Biden, the Biden administration, I think in many ways has been tougher on China than the Trump administration was. In in, in part because it's it's a bit more of a coherent agenda, and also it has done more with uh, certain allies, and so it's much more of a sort of a united, almost united front against the PRC than sort of the the Trump administration, more sort of my way or the highway approach. I want to talk um, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I do want to talk with you, Bill, about uh, how China's changed, how the relationship has changed, and and whether we're, we're seeing China the way it really is instead of the way we wish it to be. Back in moments. One of the big questions for me over the last little while, Bill, has been, are we looking at China uh, through rose-colored glasses? Or, or do we have a realistic view? Essentially, are, are we seeing China as they are or how we want them to be? Because you know, there's definitely been a, a change in the relationship between China and the West. Um, we have our own prime minister who's definitely had a blind spot on China. 
But I'm wondering your thoughts on on that among Western governments in general. Um, President Xi is uh, very different than previous leaders. He's much more authoritarian, in my view, has taken the country backwards, in my view. But I get the sense that some of our leadership uh, continues to think it's the 1990s when Bill Clinton invited the uh, the Chinese into the World Trade Organization as a as a way to open things up. How do you read this? No, I think I think most uh, it's a more more realistic to to really look at. You know, I mean, Xi Jinping himself talks about the new era. And, you know, the new era started when he became general secretary in 2012. And it really is a new era, both inside China, in Chinese politics, but then also with China's relationship with the sort of view of the world, relationship with the world. Um, and so the folks who look at things the way they were in the 90s are, you know, they're in the old era. And even the Chinese have moved on. Um, I think that, you know, certainly, um, you know, there are a lot of things that she has done that have been very popular in China. And you know the, his corruption crackdown, I think, would, was got a lot of public support. Um, their approach to COVID for the first two years was uh, internally highly successful and had a huge amount of support. I think really where where the COVID sort of came off the rails was Omicron and the way they pushed starting in uh, about a year ago or so with the the kind of lockdowns and this dynamic zero COVID. Um, but I think you know if you took a if you did a public opinion poll say a year ago you would have found a pretty confident even though it's hard to do polling in China you would have found a lot of uh, strong support for Xi Jinping for what um, what he some of the things he's done in the country sort of around the politics around corruption also China is increasing uh, prominence in the world and, and you know there's a lot to be proud of and if you're if you're Chinese there's a lot of reasons to be happy and to be, you know, and, and nationalism runs deep. And like in any country, it can be manipulated by the political system and the propaganda and the, and the sort of the media systems, but it's also real. And so um, I think though, that what, what we end up with now is trying to deal with a much more complicated and powerful and, and um, in many ways, assertive PRC that is really hard to, deal with because many of the policies that say the US or Canada or, or other sort of Western countries um, would take to shift the relationship with China to reflect more concerns about uh, the some of the Chinese um, you know foreign policy as well as some of the issues inside China like around Xinjiang and the Uyghurs or what, what's happened in Hong Kong um, you know we're so bound to China from an economic perspective that all any any choice that pushes back on the PRC uh, is expensive, both financially, socially, um, and potentially you know things like employment. And so they have a domestic political cost if you're Prime Minister Trudeau or you're President Biden or President Trump, etc. Um, and so China is just much much harder. To deal with, and I think to back to your question, the folks who sort of wanted to be back like the '90s, I think a lot of us kind of do because it was much easier to deal with. But that era is gone, and so now the question really, and, and I think this is where, like, one of the reasons potentially this balloon thing is such a big deal is, you know, you've had this debate, and you know, and more of the sort of the, the policy world sort of pushing it back on China and, and DC, they call it the blob, sort of the foreign. The sort of the, the foreign policy blob or, you know, other, other capitals have a similar sort of 
think tank, official, form official world. Uh, the balloon put China over everybody's head in the U.S., right? And so, quite, quite literally, li- no, quite literally, and it was all over the news. And, you know, you had the videos on, you know, all the networks were talking about the balloon, and it brought sort of this idea of this this other and this threatening thing in our over, literally over our heads to a much broader audience in the U.S. and made the kind of this idea of China as something to be worried about much more mainstream than I think anything has over the last several years, including the trade war, including a lot of the rhetoric during the Trump era. This was much more, I think, of bringing it home to lots more people. I remember 20-odd years ago uh, working – I worked in an office building next to a Nortel facility – and the police showing up and arresting people for spying for China 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, this stuff has been going on for a long time. I think you're right. It very much put it front and center for everyone that China is out there spying on you because, well, look up. No, and I mean, Nortel was, yeah, Nortel is, was gutted. Um, I'm sure there was bad management too, but <laughs> certainly there didn't help to have a lot of the secrets uh, end up in another country. In um, another company, yeah. In another, yeah. And I think, um, but, but so it, it just is, again, it's a, it's a, you think it's like the balloons should be happy. You open the, this conversation and talking about balloons and kids' parties, right? And you, you'd think you, you, your balloons are supposed to be good. But in this case, I think the balloon really is just a symbol of how, uh, how the world has changed, and, and it's, it really is a symbol of this new era, and and dealing with a, a really a, a bigger, more powerful, and, and different China under Xi Jinping, and how, um, however, the U.S. or Canada or other countries want to sort of try and reshape the relationship with the PRC uh, or push back on certain things, it it's going to come with a very significant cost that that it isn't clear a lot of people have fully calculated. You lived in China from 2005 to 2015. Um, you can, you, you read and speak Mandarin. You can still, you know, tap into uh, lo- whatever local media from China that you can get here. What are the big changes that you've seen um, in that time? It, is it a very different China now than when you first went? So I actually first went in the late 80s. I spent some time there in the late 80s and the early 90s. And then the last time I lived there um, was 05 to 2015. I've actually lived like 13 and a half years in my adult life. It's, it's, uh, if you hear me coughing, it might be the Beijing smog. The Beijing air is very good now. Um, no, I mean, again, it, it was to your point about sort of earlier, the, this sort of the, the sort of older folks who talk about China and like sort of like out of the 90s, you know, China was in the 90s was there was a lot. It was it was very open. It was quite poor. Um, there was a lot of ferment. There was a it just it just was a and it was frankly relatively weak. And so for I think a lot of America, a lot of other countries, it was we can work with these. We can work with this country because we're still the big, you know, we're, we're the big we're the big country. We're the strong country. They have to listen to us. And, you know, that isn't what a country with a long history like China and a proud history and a, um, you know, that's not ultimately the position they wanted to be in. They, they see no reason why they should be subservient at all or number two to the US. And I think that, so over the last several decades, China's gotten much richer. It's obviously, you know, you see the hardware and the amazing things like high-speed rail and all the, all the 
the infrastructure that you know we certainly in the U.S. would think would be great, um, but you know that, that comes with a set, separate set of costs. That's not the point of this podcast. But my point is that you know there there are lots of reasons for people in China to be incredibly proud of where the how the country's developed. I mean, there are lots. Don't get me wrong. There are lots of problems. There are lots of people who are unhappy, like in any country, but. China is a much stronger, richer, more powerful country today than it was in the 90s. And anyone who, any citizen of any country who's had this incredible trajectory of growth in terms of both economic and as well as national power would be, I think, pretty proud of where the country is for, for the most part. And so we're dealing now, you know, the, the, the challenge for the U.S. is we're dealing with a near peer on almost every dimension of power. And that's not something that I'm just from a U.S. government perspective, that's not something the U.S. government is used to dealing with. In fact, the people who have had those experiences, you know, those are, they're all retired. This was maybe during parts of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. This is a whole new thing for most people who are working in, say, the U.S. or Canadian governments. And it's very, it's a very, very hard problem. I imagine it would be in a complete mind shift change. Now, you talk about nationalism and, and pride, and, and you're right. Everybody's you know proud of their country. You know, I get worried when I see China with its military posture threatening in the South China Sea with Taiwan, uh, other flashpoints. I'm guessing that it's not viewed that way by people living in China. That they, they, they take a very different view probably in line with where the the administration in Beijing is. Oh, for sure. No, I mean for for you you know Taiwan and Taiwan is seen by just about everybody in the PRC as as the sort of the wayward province that has to come home. And I I mean I've said this before and you know even if Xi Jinping and the Communist Party went away tomorrow and there was the sort of democratic republic of China um they'd still want Taiwan I think because it's so ingrained in this idea that this is part of our country that was that was basically we law you know there's the whole um, you know the 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 predation that the country suffered during the imperialist period and you know how it was carved up and the opium wars and sort of all, all the things that happened in the country that were were quite devastating. And now they've, you know, Mao came in, they've stood up and they've gotten strong and, now, and they've gotten rich and now they're getting strong. Um, and part of that, and, you know, Xi Jinping, he wasn't the first Chinese leader to talk about this idea of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, but he's the one who's pushed hard, hardest on it and made it much more central to his overall agenda and program um, for his, his um, period of control over the country. Key to that is returning what they say, returning Taiwan to the motherland. Um, and again, Taiwan a decade, two decades ago was they always the Chinese side, the PRC side always said it had to come back, but it was there was possibilities or a hope for a potential political solution. There also was not the um, military capability to take Taiwan by force, and, and now we've gotten to the point where the the PLA, the, the People's Liberation Army in China, is much closer to having the capability to take back Taiwan, and certainly they're I think very close to um, having the ability to prevent other countries, including the U.S., from successfully defending Taiwan. And so, um, the, again, this goes back to this idea that one of the things we're seeing is this real shift in the relative balance of power um, in ways that are not favorable to sort of the U.S. and the U.S.-led West. 
you've mentioned several times the popularity of uh, President Xi. Is, does he face any internal unrest or dissent, whether it's from the population or within the uh, the Communist Party of China? You know, there, there was some pushback over the lockdowns a little while ago. That was shocking and, and surprising to many of us. Uh, is that just a one-off or is that a, a symptom of something else? No, I think there's, I mean, you know, the, the, there's a lot of, there's always been grumbling, like in any country. There, there, the, the, the last few months of the Dynamic Zero COVID program last year uh, did so much economic damage and so much social damage that it really pushed a lot of people to the brink. And so you, you ended with this, this culmination of various um, protests in November um, that were pretty, you know, they weren't huge, but they were pretty shocking to see people gathering like that in Shanghai and Beijing. And, you know, most, the vast, vast majority of the people were not advocating to overthrow Xi or overthrow the Communist Party. They were, look, they were wanted to basically get their lives back. Right to get out of this crazy, that what what was increasingly looked like is just this crazy lockdown and and frankly unsustainable lockdown policy. Um, you know, the the Communist Party though they they do have to worry about the economy because if people are not able to make money if they're if they're not able to work, you know, if they have large unemployment, that does raise the potential of some sort of social unrest on a, on, on a, on a larger scale. And that's certainly one of the things that drove, I mean, everyone looks at a protest in China and says, Oh my God, it's like 1989 Tiananmen square. Um, and it's not, it's a very different, um, but there's certainly, if you, if, if from the communist party's perspective, when they look at sort of how to maintain social stability, you know, what are the causes of protests? They've done a lot of work on what led to the 1999 events and certainly economic problems, the lack of opportunity, unemployment, inflation um, were some of the key factors. And so those are things that they're very, very focused on avoiding. And I think that's what, when you go back to say, what drove the exit from, from dynamic zero COVID last fall, one of the factors was, I think, the, the, the realization that it was destroying the economy. Um, in terms of inside the Communist Party, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's always been opaque. It's much more opaque now than it was in the previous era before Xi Jinping came into power. Um, and so it's, it's dangerous to say there's no opposition. Um, but I think what you can say is, one, when you look at this, the 20th Party Congress last October, uh, when you look at the key sort of personnel appointments and the, and the way that um, people were appointed into the various bodies that had, sit at the top of the Communist Party, um, it's pretty clear that Xi Jinping was able to pick basically all people he approved. Um, so, so that, you know, it, it really pushed out any remnants of potentially other power centers. The other thing he's done over the last 10 years is he's gone through the, the the systems that really control hard power like the police the 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 secret police the the ministry of state security the people's liberation army and he's pushed through restructuring and purges and again stacked it with people he's chosen and so the odds of something coming from within the party to challenge xi jinping um i mean you can again i, I would never say zero because of the opacity of the system and the Sort of the way our the sort of history of authoritarian systems, but the I think the likelihood is lower now than it has been at any time during his ten plus years in power. 
I'll, I'll leave you with this. I've often heard from skeptics of China that China will get old before it gets rich. You sound much more uh, bullish on that side of things. You're bearish on the, the, the relationship, perhaps, but you my take from what you've been saying, what I've read at uh, Sinocism is that um, you, you don't necessarily see it that way. Well, I mean, I don't want to say bullish, but I think that, you know, that so much of the China discourse and sort of popular discourse outside of China is sort of this binary, you know, sort of boom or bust or collapse or take over the world. And, you know, the answer is always somewhere in the middle. It's more of a spectrum. And so I think when, you know, this idea of old, old before rich is, of course, you know, now for the first year, we, we see that the Chinese population started to decline and, and, and the demographics are not good in terms of the sort of the composition of different age cohorts. And so there's lots, they're going to be a real burden with older people um, over the next few years in China. Um, you know, other countries have, you know, you can still be fairly prosperous. Um, there are potentially technology solutions to some of the issues around the workforce and sort of it's so, so I think it's, it's, it's something that the leadership in China is, is obviously worried about. They're now they've switched from trying to control births to promote births and trying to push much more pro-natalist policies. And, and so far, none of them have stuck, but they're, they're going to keep trying. So it's something they're concerned about. But is it like, oh, my gosh, hair on fire crisis? Probably not. Um, but it's also a, certainly another potential headwind on China's development. Bill Bishop, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. If you want to read more of Bill Bishop, you can look up his uh, newsletter, his blog, Sinicism, on Substack. Definitely well worth the read and regularly updated. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name is Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pro. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. And remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music. Um, give us a rating. Leave a comment. It always helps. And Tell your friends. Thanks for listening.